Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unexpected journeys. I'm Wanda. I'm Navia. And I'm Ashani. This is episode 32, One Does Not Simply Put Mary in a Corner. As always, there will be spoilers for the entire Tolkienverse ahead. With that said, let's get right to it. How does this go again? Okay. In this chapter, the muster of Rohan, we... (laughs) What fucking happens in this chapter? Nothing. (laughs) It's the muster of Rohan. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the Rohirrim muster. Um, Okay, let's try and get this as an actual sensible take. So in this chapter, we spend a lot of time with Mary and Mary is with Theoden and the army of the Rohirrim. They are at camp, getting ready to muster their forces and ride out, per Gandalf's instructions. And while they're at the camp, a couple of things happen. One is that Mary expresses his desire to go along with Theoden's forces and is more or less gently told no. And the other big thing that happens is that Gondor sends for aid. And so we see a messenger from Gondor come and request the aid of the Rohirrim. Theoden agrees. And so by the end of the chapter, the army sets out for Minas Tirith. So yeah, at first, it kind of feels like this is not a chapter where a lot happens. But I kind of got the sense that all three of us enjoyed this chapter in spite of that. So I'm curious what you liked about it because i i kind of got the sense from all of our notes that we we did like it i liked the i liked the mary perspective a lot for a couple of reasons the first reason that i liked the mary perspective was that he more than any of the other hobbits is definitely stuck in a liminal zone right now where nothing is happening and he just has to kind of wait things out and the second reason is that he, unlike uh, Frodo and Sam, and most recently Pippin, who's become Peregrine Prince of the Halflings, is getting fuck all done. Like he has no, he has no productive value <laughs> to the people that he has uh, fallen in with, and that's real. I feel that. Also, I feel Gondor calling for aid after everyone's already on their way to help them. It me, uh, <laughs> but yeah, this chapter was. It was, it was fun that way. It was relatable. Yeah. I also really liked the Merry perspective. Um, he, he is as delightful as Pippin to hear from. And I also think that the way that Tolkien writes chapters that deal with Rohan are just like, they feel very melancholy for some reason. And it's the way he does his descriptions. It's It feels like it's like permanently Twilight and... Uh, as in the time of day and not the novel and, <laughs> and like um and it's always just like it feels like they're kind of always riding to their doom a little bit you know um but very very slowly and i it, it just it's a it's a big mood yeah i also think theoden is a great king a plus work theoden. theoden is a great king and i do want to talk about Theoden in this chapter. But before we do that, one of the things I just realized as you two were talking is that this is our first chapter with Mary where there is no other member of the fellowship present. That's true. And in fact, this might be our first chapter where we only get one member of the fellowship the entire time. Tolkien's like very literal about that too. Like n- now that that's the mm-hmm. case, like that's Mar- like half of Mary's thought process in the chapter is like, oh, look at this. I'm the only member of the fellowship around. Yeah, I think like part of the thing that I like about both Mary and Pippin's chapters in particular is that they they seem to be the most aware of the rest of like what's happening where they're always thinking about like oh like I wonder where Frodo is right now or oh I like haven't thought about him in a while meanwhile when have we ever heard Frodo or Sam like other than when they're just like man I wish Gandalf was here to help like they literally forgot 
about everyone else who was with them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't really care. And this feels like the most realistic of like, if you started out with some friends and you got separated, you'd really, you would think about where they were at all times. Yeah. Especially if you started out like explicitly going in support of one of those friends and then that friend fucks off into the distance (laughs) and you're like, all right, now I got to figure out And maybe that's a good way of thinking about the Merry and Pippin chapters, as I say it, is like, here are these two characters where their purpose literally wandered off into the mountains without them. And now they're both trying to find a new reason for why they are here. And that's like the thing. Mm -hmm. Like if you if you are if you become part of a like quest, then even though you might be the least important member you do take on some kind of like intrinsic value in some Heisenberg principle kind of way. And as your adventure progresses, you eventually like have to stop just thinking of yourself as this means to somebody else's end or means to the group's end. And you also have to think about like, all right, like this, this group or this quest now includes me. That means by definition that my feelings about it are, they are worth being heard right like throughout this chapter mary is like demanding or begging theoden to take him with him to battle and i think that's something we all put in our notes that it is clearly obnoxious that mary's doing this and yet it's also sympathetic i thought i was very very sympathetic i I felt for him yeah and and of all the characters that we've seen right these are the two that seem the most to kind of like lack agency in in what they're doing where they don't really have a choice but to be dragged along wherever these kings or these wizards like tell them to go and they try to make themselves helpful in the ways that they know how but ultimately like as as happens right at any time Theoden can kind of be like all right stay here or go here or do this and they like what is Mary gonna do go back to the Shire like you can't do that alone (laughs) No, that would be. He's like, all right, guys, I guess I'm just going to leave. Yeah. Spin off novel, Mary just walks back to the Shire by himself. Yeah. Mary's adventures. Theoden says, at one point, I release you from my service, but not from my friendship. That's hard to hear. Everybody says that to me. <laughs> uh, but it would be easier in a way if Theoden did release him from his friendship, if he was like, just fuck off. I never want to see you again. But instead, it's like, I don't want you here on this particular job with me. We can't pull this heist mm-hmm. of Gondor with you along, but I do still love you. You do not make the cut of Theoden's Eleven. Well, that's right. I kind of want to bring up something that maybe only I on this podcast can talk about, which is like how it affects how people see you to just be a small person. Uh, I am very short as are Marianne Pippin. And I think in a lot of ways, like the characters in this novel, like they they treat Marianne Pippin like children because they are the size of children, even though they aren't children. They are grown mm-hmm. hobbits, right? And I have yeah. found this, like, not that people treat me like a child, but there's a lot of like, when you're short or when you're small, people will do a lot of just like, oh, like, look how cute you are. Or they'll, like, pick you up without you, like, wanting to be picked up or things like that. And I don't know. It kind of, like, it feels like Tolkien is, try- like, trying to make that point of, like, there's even a line in, in this chapter where Theoden says something where he's, like, your your heart is bigger than your stature or something like that. And I was just, like, dude. You're like, why are you always making it about that? Yeah, it's a grown-ass man that you're talking to. <laughs> like... <laughs> <laughs> I, I felt really bad. I mean, there's there's like the logistical component, which Theoden is 100% right about, which is that Mary just like physically can't ride a war horse into battle, right? But there's also the component where like Theoden is trying to protect him as if he's a child and like he's not. He can make this decision for himself. Mm-hmm. And kind of having said all of that, I'm really curious how you two read Mary's request to go along with Theoden, like this insistence, this like really kind of desperate, you know, tie me to the saddle if you have to, (laughs) or I'll run. And like, even if I get there late, I'll still like, I'm going to go. 
how did you read that? Like, where did you kind of read that as coming from? Yeah, I thought about it a lot when I was taking my notes. At first, I thought that it was obnoxious and that it was coming from a place of Mary trying to be among the more linebacker-esque people that he has fallen in with to the detriment of the entire group. Wanda dropping these football references. She's finally watched the big game. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but then then I was like, it sucks to be part of something and to get to a point where you no longer really recognize like how much you're helping. And then to have somebody else double down on that and be like, yeah, I don't want you anymore. It's just terrible. And so I think that's like, that's, I think where we can locate the rightness or wrongness of Eowyn at the end of this chapter saying, come with me, Mary, we're going to ride to war together. Although she doesn't tell him that she's Eowyn. Where I think we can locate that on the right to wrong scale is clearly it's sort of obnoxious for either of them to be begging for a chance to go to battle. But it's definitely good that they elbow their way in. I feel for Mary here. Like it definitely doesn't feel good to be left behind or be considered not helpful. And I think also there's that line that he says to Theoden where he's just like, why did you accept my service in the first place? Right. Theoden Mm -hmm. accepted him as his steward or whatever. I, I don't remember what he named it in particular, but he he accepted his service and he said, like, you know, I will have your your sword. And to me, when when a king does that, that means like I will call on you if I need something, right? And I think there's there's also a difference between what happened with Eowyn and what happens with Mary here, in that Eowyn was asked to stay behind for a purpose. She was asked to do something. She was like, Here you are in charge of your people. Please, like, mm-hmm. organize this while I'm gone. On the other hand, Mary, Theoden is basically just like, you can stay here with Eowyn if you want. Like, he doesn't give him a job. He doesn't say, this is your purpose. This is what I want you to do. He's just kind of like, I don't need you to come to the battle. Figure it out. And I think that's a very different position to be in. Yeah. I also don't think that Mary elbows his way into the battle out of anything that we can call selfish, Right. He's going to his death from his perspective. He doesn't want to be left behind. And just like Theoden says at the beginning of the chapter, when Eomer says, Theoden, you should just stay behind in Edoras, Theoden says, why would I want to do that? If we lose, what, what's that, what's the, what future is there for me? And it seems like Mary is thinking much the same thing. Although maybe he has a little bit more hope for the outcome of the battle than Theoden does. Yeah. It's also not the first time Mary has done this, right? He and Pippin marched with the Ents to potentially their doom also. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a piece of, like, there are clearly parallels between Mary and Eowyn, but there are, I think there's kind of another piece to that difference, right, of, like, Eowyn being asked to stay behind because she has a very specific, it's like, you are the last person of the ruling family left alive. Like, you got to be here to lead them. Because when everybody else dies, as is likely, you're going to be queen of Rohan. Like, you got to stay, which is... You know, and so to me, Eowyn's decision, I think, then feels more selfish, even if we know that it works out for her. But I think there's a the opposite piece of that is that this isn't Mary's home. Mary is here as a like he has already got a task, right? His task was to go on this journey and support Frodo and Sam like and then sort of along with him, Sam in doing what they need to do to deal with the ring. And this is an extension of that. And just hanging out in the keep isn't what he's here for. If he was just going to stay behind and be safe, he sh- he would have never left the Shire. So, like, as our horse expert... <laughs> yes. How infeasible is it for Mary to potentially ride one of these horses into battle? Honestly, Theoden's excuse is total bullshit. Really? Okay. Yes. That, yes. You can absolutely put 
I mean, they do it all the time, right? Like, for context, I was riding full-grown horses by age seven. Okay. Against Theoden's orders. <laughs> yes, right. Against <laughs> Theoden's explicit orders as a small child, I was put on a war horse. Um, no, but, like, that's the thing, right, is you can absolutely put small children and you can put smaller children than age seven, like, on horses. It's just that what you have to do is either like and that's the thing is in a big group of people it wouldn't even really be a concern because horses are herd animals and so you just stick mary in the middle of the pack and like even if he couldn't control the horse because it's so much bigger than him it wouldn't matter because it's also it's a horse of rohan like it's super well trained it's gonna go along with all of the other horses and behave and he can absolutely sit in a saddle that's built for someone much bigger. People do it all the time. Like when I did pony camps, we would put toddlers in saddles that adults could use. Okay, I'm really glad I asked you this question because it like totally changes my take on this. <laughs> yeah, so like here's the part Mary couldn't do. Mary, not being a trained horse person, I would not say should ride a horse into battle, but he could absolutely use the horse to get to the battle. And then fight on foot. Like, there's there's no reason I can see that he would not be able to, like, get there. Anyways. <laughs> and then just leap off the horse strategically at a certain point and, and plow some orc in the head and I mean, like, just go from there. We know that they stop dramatically before they do a charge. So, like, they stop. Mary hops off. And then he just kind of, like, good, jogs right? behind the horse. <laughs> I want to stick up for the fact that Mary never and Pippin, they, they never plan anything <laughs> and it always works out fine as like, uh, maybe, maybe Mary represents all of us gathered here in some way. Ishani with the horses, Navia with the shortness <laughs> and me with the lack of planning and it working out good because it's, it's really born fruit throughout the entire series that like, they will come up with these weird, like, so crazy, it just might work style plans, and it always works. Like, they literally take down Saruman this way. <laughs> and so I think that like, in as much as he's sticking up for himself as a short king, he's also definitely sticking up for himself here as a non planner. Uh, and all I can say is, I applaud oh. it and I respect <laughs> I'm it. Still stuck on the three components of Mary's personality are <laughs> impulsivity, shortness, and horses? Question <laughs> mark. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, astrology. <laughs> what else does he have? He's nothing. He's a blank space. <laughs> yeah. As a character, he has nothing except that he actually he's like rich. He's rich, right? Back in the, back in the Shire. Lest we forget, Mary is, I think, maybe outside of Frodo, the most <laughs> legacied of the four hobbits. You know, one mm -hmm. of the things I feel like this book does really well is when you just mentioned that, I was like, oh, the Shire. Like, we feel so far away from the Shire right now um, in terms yeah. of, like, where they physically are, but also, like, the vibe. I don't even remember being <laughs> in the Shire. <laughs> the last time we were talking about the Shire, I was still crying over my last partner that's how long it's been yeah and maybe that is also a function of the way we're reading it but i do think you're right navia that there is this sense that so much emotional and physical distance yeah. has passed like who gives then. a like, fuck that mary's rich in the shire at this point <laughs> like, yeah well because it really doesn't, it doesn't matter, matter right, right? it's this, like yeah. that stuff is so immaterial at this point to anything about his current situation mm -hmm. well except i guess i just want to say that like some something that's like that feels true in life is that if you are if you grow up accustomed to more or less getting your way when you ask for things mm. that's going to be the way that you operate when you become part of like group stuff whether it's like you know a, a movement or a job you're at or whatever yeah and that's sometimes a liability and it's also definitely a strength like mary being independent here and just choosing to go to war his way tm works out pretty well in the end yeah although you know again i think like eowyn i don't necessarily see either of their decisions as being particularly altruistic and i i think eowyn in particular i sit there and i go like we give 
Merry and Pippin a lot of shit for being impulsive and not thinking things through. And Eowyn is, has clearly planned, but it also feels like she's making a decision that is very much a selfish decision. Uh, can we talk about, like, who did she leave in charge? Did she even yeah. delegate this to anyone? Like, Probably not, because whoever she left in charge, she would have had to tell, like, that she's going and everybody knows she's not supposed to. Yeah, so did she just leave the entire peoples of Rohan to, like, figure it out for themselves? I think so. Not a good look. She left it with, like, a, a washerwoman, and that washerwoman's descendant was Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but real talk, like, it's very noticeable, I think, to me in this chapter that Mary is like, I don't want to not go with Theoden, because at this point, like... Yes, I don't want to be left behind. And there's kind of that like selfish feeling of I don't want to be the only one who's left and I don't want to be the only one who's not a part of this story anymore. But it's also like, no, but I'm it's Theoden and we're friends now and I don't want him to go off without me. And the thing that really struck me is I feel like in the movies it is portrayed more as like Eowyn wants glory, but she also like really cares about her family and... Eowyn, like, already asked to go with Aragorn and doesn't seem to care who she goes with to battle. She's just like, I just want to die in battle. Yeah. Like, and I don't really care how it happens or who it happens with. I know this is supposed to make me like Eowyn less, but it kind of makes me like her more <laughs> in a weird way where, like, I just relate to, like, how ridiculously ambitious she is. Like, she doesn't care she just wants her glory you know and i i mean no she she definitely does not like break a glass ceiling for future women of middle earth no it's she's just like this is my cage and i want my cage to be done like i want to break this and and she wants to do it because she wants to be remembered and she wants to be Mm -hmm. like the warrior that they talk about in the songs or whatever and it definitely i know it's supposed to like make me feel like she is selfish or whatever but to me like it seems it's okay when I say I like her more it I don't mean like (laughs) great quality I like you as a person right Mm -hmm. I mean more like that it makes her character more real to me than it was in the movies where like she's just like kind of a figurehead of just like I am a feminist and this feels more just like she has her own motivations yes. and she has shit going on that is not just purely like, I am doing this for all women, you know? She's not a figurehead. Yeah. She's she's a person. Yeah. To me, that made her feel young, mm-hmm. right? And not even in a way that I can necessarily be critical of because there's a point in our lives when we're all like, we just, we want the things we want, right? And we want to go do the things we want to do. And just because I don't agree with her decision doesn't mean I don't get why she feels that way. Right. And as you were talking, Navi, I was thinking about, like, you're totally right. And that quality of, well, I want to do it because I want to do it. If she was the protagonist of this story, we'd be like, yeah, that's totally justified. Like, you go, girl. Right? I mean, we have allowed Aragorn to just not be king for a while because he didn't want to, so... I think that, like, in a in a way, Eowyn is a protagonist, which gets proven at some point mm-hmm. when she slays the Witch King and it's something from a prophecy, right? Mm-hmm. Which just said, like, more, uh, more your classic, like, central fantasy hero, right? As opposed to this, which is right. much more ensemble cast. But if she was, like, the central protagonist of a fantasy story. Right. I think that's, like, something about these, like, something about these series is that Every single character that you interact with in a major way is presumed to have some kind of intrinsic value. That's why you're reading about them. Mm-hmm. That's like the mythic quality of it. And it's sort of a closed loop, right? Like you get introduced to characters, you get this moment of like vulnerability and intimacy with them where you're like, I don't know if you're going to amount to anything. They do something like amazing. And then you're like, ah, you did it because, or like we we know you as a character because you were foretold to do something amazing. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's kind of like a closed loop. But I but I kind of like that this series like it plays with the chosen one trope, but it kind of like sidesteps it at every point where I like that she what she's going to be remembered as 
is the woman who slayed the witch king from the prophecy like hero for for middle earth and all and nobody will remember that like she did it for selfish reasons or that she left rohan to fend for Mm -hmm. itself and similarly like everyone will remember that frodo destroyed the ring and no one will remember that he had like a moment at the end where he wasn't going to (laughs) or that you know he abandoned sam halfway through the journey or any of the like shitty things that he did and i think i like that in this series the character's like you see their journey to doing the thing they'll be remembered for and it's not just this person was so special that they became like the person who did this thing mm-hmm. it's such an interesting thing to say because it's at odds i think with how a lot of people interpret the text like not trying to throw any particular person or people under the bus here just that if you are you know like people can read Eowyn's storyline for instance and be like Eowyn's an inspiration for all women um and it's like well except that that's like not really it if you put yourself inside of the inside of the world of Lord of the Rings that's absolutely not what her character's arc means at all Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and I do kind of wonder for Eowyn in particular knowing that we get to see not just her big heroic moment, but also a little bit the aftermath of that big heroic moment. I'm wondering where she's going to end up, right? Like, where does that take her? Because it's not just, it isn't just like chosen one and heroic moment. It's like, and then here's what happens. Yeah, then she just becomes Mrs. John Faramir. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Which is like not exactly like the kind of to the extent that we're all like kind of beholden to our role models, like it's not really the kind of role model that I necessarily want. But I do think she's badass. Mm-hmm. Like her character's great. Mm-hmm. But it probably also rings true to like in real life when we think of people as like heroes, right? Yes, most people who do something that benefits a larger group of people there is some altruism in that but there's also a component of like this affects me and i want to affect change for myself and yeah i don't think you can really be effective in whatever change you're trying to make if you don't care a lot because it matters to you personally yeah yeah you kind of have to insert yourself and make yourself you have to you have to kind of raise the stakes for yourself personally in order to like give the most that you can give Mm -hmm. At least that's my feeling. I don't know. I'm not sure. (laughs) Which, okay, but (laughs) if that's underlying all of people's decision making, and I don't think you're necessarily wrong that there is that component of like, why am I invested? I think then with the time remaining to us, we should talk about Theoden and the relationship with Gondor that shows up here because it is not what I expected and not what I expected based on like my memory of the movies yeah. at all. Same. And I the think special that, relationship. I mean, in the yeah. movies it's messy and here it's also messy, but they're messy in totally different ways. Mm-hmm. How do you feel like it's messy here, Navia? Okay. Well, Ishani, do you want to like give a recap first of what this relationship is? Yeah. So in the book, what we know from prior chapters is that Rohan is or was at some point, it is implied to have at one point been a a vassal state of some kind, right? We know for a fact that Gondor basically gave that land to the predecessors of the Rohirrim and said, this is yours now, this can be your country. But in doing that, there is definitely this sense of there's a higher, and we've talked about it on the pod, there's a hierarchy that has kind of been implied where Gondor is, what was the phrase? I think at some point Wanda might have partner. said, yes, that's <laughs> it. Thank you. Senior partner. Um, the senior partner in this relationship. But when in the books, a messenger comes from Denethor bearing the black arrow, which is an indicator that Gondor is going to be at war and they're calling for it's the red, the red arrow, arrow, right? The red arrow. It was the red arrow. Okay. Black fletched, red with red painted, something like that. Um, Yes, the red arrow. Go birds. The red arrow. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Keep going. Yeah. <laughs> they give them Go the multi colored arrow of dreams and say, We need your help. And 
It's a very respectful request. In fact, it's very explicitly, this is not a command. We're asking for your help. Like, we would encourage you to help because, hey, guess what? Like, the army is massing, and after it tears through Minas Tirith, like, it's probably coming for you guys next. But it's not a demand, and there's no time frame on it. And in response, Theoden says something which I thought was really interesting, which is there's no there's no waffling either. He's immediately like, yes, we will help. Here's the thing. Here's how many people we can send. I do need to leave some people to guard my own, like, keeps and strongholds. But here's the number of people we'll send. We're mustering now. We can get there within a week. And the messenger is like, well, that's, we would love it if you could get there sooner. But I understand if that's when you can make it, like, that's when you can make it. We still want the help. And it's very amicable all around and very upfront in a way that just does not feel like it happens in the movies. They also say, we will feed you. They're like, Gondor has huge, Mm -hmm. huge stores of grain and you should just leave all your food behind so that you can get here faster. They're talking about it totally like tactically, right? They're like, oh, like, should we come inside the gates? And Theoden's like, no, actually, like our army fights better on horses. So we'll stay outside the gates and we'll do this like in the open warfare style. And he's like, okay, well, yeah, we have food. Like, we'll support you, all this stuff. So... I agree in general that like this was definitely much <laughs> this relationship in the movies is just like we hate each other yeah, and it's like, I don't want to go help you and fine Aragorn has convinced very me. Very acrimonious. Yeah. Do you think that given that it has been established that Rohan was at one point basically a fiefdom of Gondor that this actually is one of the very first times that Gondor has had to treat Rohan as an equal partner? Like, are we actually witnessing, like, the creation of the a more equal Gondor-Rohan relationship? I don't think so, because if you think, if we think back to, like, the chapter with Pippin, where he saw all of these, like, different armies arriving to Gondor after, like, eight had been called for, right? I see it as, like, very similar to that, where, like, this is one of the partners that they were just like, all right, send a message to Rohan, too, and see if they'll come. Mm-hmm. I I see it still kind of as, like, <laughs> you know that line in the in the movies where Theoden is like, where was Gondor when Rohan called for aid? Mm-hmm. Do you think this would work the other way? Like, do you think Rohan could send a message to Gondor and be like, sup, we need some help? Well, but, you know, that's the thing, is, like, we've talked about this before in the context of individuals, but one of the tenets of swearing your loyalty is that you get protection in exchange, right? Like, that's a pretty classic and pretty standard piece of, like, yes, if we're tithing to you or if we're there in support of you, like, the the other part of that is that you, as the more powerful entity, have to protect us when we need it. So I kind of feel like Yes, they should, right? Like, and they Maybe. probably would have had to, especially in the early years when Rohan was still establishing itself. Like, Gondor's obligation yeah. is to protect them. I guess so. We don't, I don't think we get that history. I don't, nobody ever says in the books, like, that Gondor didn't come to protect Rohan when Rohan needed help. True, but yeah. I mean, they certainly were not at Helm's Deep. Yeah, but I don't know that Rohan sent out messages, right? Like, did they say hey gondor like come help us because <laughs> it never really sounded like they did it kind of sounded like they were trying to deal with it just internally That's a really good question yeah and if if we think back to also like like boromir's whole lament at the in the first book right like gondor's kind of been exhausted fighting its own border battles with mordor yeah so i don't know that they have anyone to send right and to be fair like boromir's thing about like, we've been doing this all this time. He's really kind of addressing, it feels like, the elves and the dwarves in that space, right? Like, there aren't any other, other than Aragorn, like, there aren't any other human representatives at that meeting. And so when he's like, well, Gondor is doing all of this, it's really kind of addressing, like, it feels like it's pointed at Rivendell in particular, which is this oasis of calm, and right. the elves, which are all like, eh, whatever, yeah. we'll just 
when he says Gondor, he means like men have been doing this. Right? Yeah. 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 Right. Like it kind of feels like that. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Like we've talked before on the pod about how like Rohan has definitely has like a an, like an American West cowboy vibe to it. And so one way you could read this is that Rohan has just been kind of fighting its own battles because it can't really count on Gondor for aid. It's like not that kind of client state. It's more like a, we did you a favor by giving you this land. Now take care of it yourself. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there is also a piece of the kinds of battles that they are probably fighting are different. Like, I, I get the sense that Rohan's battles are much more open ground skirmishes. Like, they might have raiders that come in and try and target villages uh, it's not all out like siege warfare the way that gondor yeah is. like it feels very much like that's why they have these bands of riders that patrol the territory because it's more about like bandits and not necessarily the kind of threat where you'd be like we need a huge standing army well until saruman appears right like that's what changes everything. right right yeah yeah it's mostly wild men up until that point the interesting thing about this is that if you think about the timing of it True, Gondor does send out requests for aid to all of its other little outposts, but it seems like that happens a lot earlier than the request that it sends to Rohan. I don't know if they're, they're just like closer. Yeah. Maybe the beacons don't go all it, the way to Rohan. I don't know. <laughs> it could be that, that this is sort of a relationship where, you know, like Theoden receives the red arrow and he's like, oh, I've never really gotten that before. And it could be the kind of relationship where, you know, in theory, Rohan is still obliged to protect or to serve Gondor, but that they're independent enough that this is supposed to be like a very rare occurrence and kind of a last ditch request in the same way that if you are a great power that has effectively created another power and your primacy in the world depends on always looking like you can handle your own shit, like sending a request to Rohan is kind of like make it you're started sending a message to them like you know for maybe the first time ever we are no we're not able to handle our own shit we need your help well and that's why i like when i said it that this was messy in the book what i really meant was like timing wise this is like weirdly messy right rohan is already marching to gondor when they get this message it feels right. like maybe this should have been sent out earlier or like no one is communicating. <laughs> and I know that, you know, obviously it takes a while for a messenger to get across this land and stuff. But like, somehow in the movie, I get the sense that they have faster means of communication, whether that's like lighting beacons or whether that's like, I don't know, Gandalf sending a message somehow or, you know, speed writing shadow facts wherever. <laughs> like, like Gandalf went to Gondor. Didn't he tell them that Rohan was coming? He might have. Well, and that's the thing. Like, I think there are a couple of pieces of information that we should be considering here, right? One is that Gandalf is the one who tells the Rohirrim to muster Mm -hmm. at first. So, like, Gandalf is kind of anticipating this and may have said something along the lines of, like, Rohan is ready if you call upon them. Or Rohan is getting ready for you to call upon them. You should call upon them. But the other thing I'm thinking about is, wasn't it true that when... Pippin and everyone is standing there watching the the people come in to Minas Tirith. There's something about like this is fewer people, like fewer forces than they were mm-hmm. expecting, right? Like yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm not making no, that no, up. No, I don't yes. think right. There was something about like they sent out to all of their various like all the lords around the the nation. They sent to people like there was something about. Oh, but then like all of the people on the coast have to deal with this other threat, so they're not coming. And so I think there is a little bit of they might have thought, oh, we're going to have enough people to handle it without reaching out. And then the actual muster happens at Minas Tirith and they're like, shit, we really don't Mm -hmm. like we don't have the troops that we thought we were going to have. We need to message Theoden and and see if he can help. Got to DM Theoden. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Because then you have to imagine like. If it would take a week from where Theoden is with an army to get to Gondor, a messenger with the ability to presumably change horses could do it in a couple of days, Mm -hmm. 
Right. Because inevitably an army moves slower. Yeah. This is potentially really interesting to think about how Gondor has its own timeline for requesting that people become part of the war. And Gandalf has his own timeline where he kind of is anticipating that Gondor is not going to request help until it's kind of already too late. And Mm -hmm. so he's doing his deals, getting Rohan to become part of this war before, you know, before Gondor even asks, which is sort of the, it's, it's, it's dealt with a little bit in the movies, although perhaps in a distorted way that Gandalf is trying to upend the relationship between Gondor and Rohan by saying the old, the old ways, the old procedures by which you call for assistance are not going to work this time, right? Like, if anything, Sauron is anticipating that Gondor is going to try to stand on its own when it no longer has the means to do so. And it's going to resist calling on potential allies. So we are going to mobilize those allies in advance, which I think is really interesting. And and in the movie, right? Like Gandalf and Pippin do the beacon lighting without Denethor's permission. Mm-hmm. Denethor is not even involved in this request. Yeah. So... Yeah, but like there's something that the messenger says where he's like, oh, if you wait too long, like by the time you get there, the orc army is already going to be between you and Minas Tirith, which is kind of what happens, right? You, I mean, I assume if this parallels how we see it in the movie, the Rohan army comes up like from the back of the orc army, right? Mm -hmm. So like to me, I'm just like, why did you wait so long to send this message if the orcs were already amassing their troops in front of your gates? Like you couldn't have given them a little bit more heads up. It me <laughs> asking for help too late. <laughs> I also really liked. I, I got the vibe of just like like when I am trying to communicate like the timeline on which something will be delivered at work, and like all my stakeholders are just like, okay, but like, can it be faster? <laughs> I'm just like, logistically, no. (laughs) Yeah, you just asked. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, so so maybe the movies and the books agree on this, like, kind of one point that Gondor is moving really slowly and Gandalf is trying to mobilize things to happen a little bit faster. Yeah. But I do do think that the portrayal in the movie is a little bit, it's just a little bit different. It just, it feels a little bit more like, it kind of puts a lot of the, puts a lot of the blame on Gondor it doesn't like it doesn't do as much of like exploration of like what Gandalf's motivation is and a lot of it is very like Denethor centric. Like I feel like the movies are just they put a lot on on our man Big D <laughs> that he's too proud. I knew. I knew as I looked at your face and I was like she's going to call him Big D and then you did. God damn it, Wanda. <laughs> what does someone's face look like when they're about to say Big D? <laughs> incredible this is a sign we've known each other too long (laughs) i'm sorry you had a point yeah yeah when you look at somebody and you're like they're gonna call them a horrible thing that i cannot unhear someone is about to ruin our collective favorite character (laughs) take it all out of the recording but the movies do, I feel like they do really villainize him when the books are saying something much more subtle, yeah. which is that, like, you know, whereas the movies are like the old alliances are dead, the books are like the old alliances are very much working as they have been, which is they're old and they're not going to mm-hmm. serve this particular challenge. Yeah. No, it's true. Like, they're working. It's just that this is not the sort of thing that, like, they have not had to work this way in generations. Right. Because Theoden actually says, right? Like, Theoden says, I have never received a red arrow. It just has not happened in his lifetime. And Theoden's old. Yeah. So. <laughs> not as per Legolas. <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> not as per the Ents, the oldest There's living one thing, thing we on know for sure. It's that Theoden is not the oldest living thing on Middle Earth. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here for her first, <laughs> folks. <laughs> and, wow, I just, yeah, I just could not. Get that you out. heard it for free or force <laughs> the arc or me. I was waiting for that to actually show up in the episode, and then it didn't. And I was just like, "Oh, okay, so it's just going to be at the start of the episode, telling everybody that I said arc or me." 
but not actually <laughs> letting them hear the context in which I said Ark or me. I thought it would be easy. I thought it would like confuse people if they heard it in the episode. It'd be like a Mobius. Kind of... <laughs> I kind of was waiting for you to put it in the episode and then I was going to say move the blooper to the end, but no. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just I'm always Wanda. Wanda is very anti-blooper, so you're never gonna get that from her. <laughs> yeah, I just don't have the optimism to think that everyone's gonna listen. Until the end. <laughs> I just put the bloopers in for my own enjoyment, <laughs> right? To memorialize. Anyways, we are now very off-topic. So, hey, any last quick-fire things you want to say about this chapter before we wrap it up? Please let me consult my notes. One second. I have one thing to say. Who the hell made Dunharrow? <laughs> Is it the same people what did the Paths of the Dead? I That was my interpretation. It's a very interesting place because it's apparent that it was built and it was maintained by this rather sophisticated civilization that preceded the arrival of the Numenorians in Middle-earth. Mm -hmm. and that these were the same people that then swore fealty to Isildur and then betrayed him, suggesting a sort of strange timeline. Are the people who built Dunharrow the same ones who did the betrayal, or did that happen later with people who lived in Dunharrow? I don't think that they're necessarily the same individuals. Okay. But oh, the same people. The, yeah. the same glob of people. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's interesting to me too that like how Rohan views this place because they definitely know that something is off about it, right? They know not to go through the Dwim Dwim Dimholt, whatever, Dwimorberg, whichever one it is. Uh, the, the, that door. You know? Dimholt under Dwimorberg, which you know You did a great job, God Queen. Bless. Uh but they, so they know not to go there and they're like purposefully camping like kind of away from that whole area. Yeah. But Theoden also mentions a few times like, oh, like I will sleep here tonight in like Dunharrow, which is like the land of my peoples or something. Um, so it feels like I, I kind of really liked how this was basically like an urban legend, like built into this mythology of where like they... They have all of these tales around this door, but nobody actually knows what's going on out in there because everyone dies, I guess, when they go in. Yeah, it's definitely like it's the, one of the best things about the series is the building kind of like the, the layering of legends upon legends. Mm -hmm. And if you look closely at it, you realize that there's a mirroring of what's going on right now in what happened to the people of Dunharrow, right? That they were this very old people who presumably then were called on by the rulers of Gondor who were at that time relative newcomers to this land and asked to swear fealty to them in which context their betrayal looks a little bit more understandable just as like a you know why should we necessarily keep faith with you but that didn't end up going so well in the grand scheme of things mm -hmm. they were cursed and it's, like, in their shadow that Theoden is preparing to upend the historic relationship between Rohan and Gondor and, like, actively, affirmatively writing. Although, interestingly, yeah, he doesn't seem to know, though, about the curse. Like, none of them seem to know that there is a cursed set of ghosts in here or that, like, they betrayed Isildur or any of that. And you would think... That if they did know that yeah. story, it would make a, an even better backdrop to this decision that they're making, right? Because it's basically a threat of if you if, if you swear fealty to Gondor, but don't show up. Um, but they don't actually know that part of the story. All they know is that this is like a cursed place that everyone dies when they go in. All they know is that a guy named Baldor, who was a <laughs> man of Rohan, went there and died right at that very moment because he didn't. He tried to go into the Pass of the Dead, yeah. and they didn't let I him. also really like that they all just think that Aragorn just went there with no plan, and that he's definitely dead. <laughs> like... Right. <laughs> it's very much the, like, oh, he's been dead. Sometimes I can still hear his voice, <laughs> and Aragorn's in the back, like, I'm right here. <laughs> Aragorn is on shaky ground in terms of his brand management at this point in the story. <laughs> He's done a lot for himself, but then he goes and fucks off 
to the paths of the dead and he is not able to convince anybody that it's a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say a line that I really liked and all of our listeners can use this as advice because I definitely do. <laughs> uh, so at some point Theoden is talking to, by the way, this dude's name is Hergon? Hergon? All of these rangers got shafted with girl. names <laughs> by Tolkien. <laughs> like, uh, anyway, he's talking to him, and he, he like that the Hergon or whatever is trying to you know make a plan. And Theoden says, "In the morning, counsels are best, and night changes many thoughts." Basically, saying like, "Let's make this decision in the morning when we're thinking clearly." Uh, big facts. Definitely sleep on it always. <laughs> Yeah. Right? Which is straight up a thing from Russian fairy tales, right? Is like, it's a traditional part of Russian fairy tales that someone will tell the protagonist, like, the morning is wiser than the evening. And you know what? It's true. Yep. Evening is not... The vibe is off. Yeah. Yeah. You know how, like, people always give the relationship advice of, like, don't go to bed angry? Yeah. I don't agree with that advice. I think you should go to bed and then talk about it in the morning when you're less angry. Yeah. When you're less angry and also less tired, yeah. right? Like, sleep on it is perfectly solid mm-hmm. advice. So there you go, listeners. My quick fire is that I liked the song, this chapter, and I'm not afraid to say it. I think we all liked the song. I didn't say it in my notes, but I did. <laughs> Yeah. It had kind of a T.S. Eliot Wasteland vibe. It really gave me the, like, if you look at the translated, like, poetic Eddas, it had that feeling. And I was very into, I was just very into it. I liked it. I thought it was well written. That doesn't always happen with Tolkien songs, but this one was... I'm not, um, I'm not familiar with that. So the poetic Eddas are like Norse, uh, like Norse mythology. Cool. So it's giving, it's giving Eddas. Yeah, it's giving it's giving like old Norse. Here's the story of Odin and Thor. That kind of vibe. So Rohan is basically Norse cowboy. <laughs> That's the vibe I've always gotten. Is like weirdly like land bound Vikings, mm-hmm. which is like I think everyone thinks of Tolkien as like a you know sort of historian, but you could also see him as like a a futurist almost, like a almost like doing science fiction projected into the past. Like, what if the Norsemen had actually been cowboys? I won't be taking questions on this <laughs> interpretation. I've had a lot of wine. I think, like, I always say that I really like Rohan and the chapters about it and the characters about it. But I think that might be because I think Tolkien really likes writing Rohan. Because he definitely, like, it feels like he puts a lot more effort into it. Yeah. Yeah, we've been in Rohan for, like, ever. Yeah, for, for like, a secondary realm. We were literally just in Gondor last chapter. Yeah, but there was a lot of Two Towers that was in Rohan. I feel like for, like, what is theoretically a secondary realm in this series, like, it gets a lot of time. Yeah, it's, like, supposed to be, like, this, like, client state, but it actually gets more airtime than the Shire. And definitely more than, like, proper Gondor. Like, Minas Tirith, for sure, gets a lot of time, but none of the rest of Gondor ever gets explored, whereas I feel like we've done the tour of Rohan. That's true. Yeah. Well, hey, on that <laughs> note. <laughs> Thanks for listening to One Does Not Simply. This episode was edited by Ashani. You can find us on Twitter at ODNSPod and Tumblr at One Does Not Simply Pod. Special thanks to Andrew, Sneha, and all of our listeners for joining us on this journey. And if you like what you hear, please give us a rating or review on whatever platform you listen to. <laughs> Welcome to One Does Not Simply, where three friends take on the Lord of the Rings and go on some unex... Fuck! <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> That was a very loud burp. The the really (laughs) horrifying burp.